You know, I wanted to do this on my phone, sit down on my beanbag, look out the window, but my phone wasn't charged, so now I'm charging my phone, and so it's taking so long, and it's not enough charge on it. Actually, does it have enough? But anyway, I've already set this up, so. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. I am looking at two passages from two books that I don't really know very much about. So I'm just going to start by saying that. But we're going to look at it together. We're going to learn from it together. It's the books of、uh, Psalms and Ecclesiastes. We are in Psalm 30 and Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So I'm going to pray for God's help. I need it. So, Heavenly Father, please help me, especially in understanding, especially in praying the Psalms.、Uh, I don't do that very well,、uh, especially emoting together with David. That's、uh, always been a struggle for me. But maybe it's a struggle for people who are listening to this as well. Help us. Therefore, help us to understand what you're saying to us, what you're helping us with, especially in dealing with our emotions, with our prayer lives, and our openness before you. Help us to pray the Psalms. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are looking at two passages from the Bible plan that I follow. I did 2 Timothy 2 this morning,、uh, but I lost the entire stream, so you can't see that.、Uh, something happened to my connection. And so I gave a short summary, I gave a two minute summary of what I did, but you do not have all the usual walkabouts, Cambridge. I took a tour of Jesus Lane. None of that's that, all that's gone.、Uh, but we have this, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 30 and God willing, Ecclesiastes chapter 6 as well. So, yep, here we go. Psalm 30, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Okay, so David wrote this psalm for the dedication of the temple, which was by his son Solomon. Was David, David wasn't around for that. Okay, all right.、Uh, yeah, okay. Verse 1 I will extol you, O Lord, for you've drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. My, you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks、uh, to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth, you've clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So here is David, you know, ending with praise, I will give you thanks forever. You know, that his glory will sing God's praise. And so the context is again at the temple. Uh, the dedication of the temple. So, this is brand new. You know, the worship of God and this new construction of this building,、uh, completed by his son Solomon. But it looks back 
to uh, David's experience, that personal experience that now extrapolates towards our experience of worship before God. And it seems to me, David, now I don't know why my phone is buzzing, David seems to be bargaining with God. Um, oh, wow, okay. Uh, yes, some messages. You know, he seems to be bargaining with God, you know, who is going to praise you if I die? That seems to me the case. Uh, verse 8, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. And he says this, verse 9, how interesting. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And so here is, <laughs> it's kind of weird. David's probably in trouble. You know, uh, he talks about this pit. He talks about shale, essentially hell. In verse 3, and he's almost bargaining with God. God, you have to help me out because if I die, no one else is going to praise you. How about that? Um, it's almost like, uh, you know how you say to your boss, you know, you know, if you fire me, no one's going to be able to, I don't know, do that thing, you know, like make your coffee or do that particular task, that Excel function that you know, no one else knows is job security, you know. So David is saying that to God, you know, you have to you have to help me out. You have to save me. Otherwise, you know, this worship, this temple dedication, you know, that's not going to be possible. You know, and um, does that sound right? Sounds weird. It but there is that progression, trouble to salvation, from peril to praise. And, you know, it's it's all throughout the psalm. You know, I cry to you for help, verse 2, and you have healed me. Verse 3, O Lord, you have brought my soul up from shale. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So it's a cry for salvation. And the result of that salvation is, is praise. Ah, okay. I, I have a feeling that maybe that can't be all right. I mean, it can't be that kind of transactive kind of uh, bargaining with God. Verse 4, David seems to be saying to the people around him, you too should be praying like this. Verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For, verse 5, his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Now, I've had this verse, you know, said to me in very, very troubling times, and I really appreciated it. I mean, um, this very elderly Christian once said to me, you know, weeping tarries for the night, and I was going through a really tough time, but it says, with the morning, with the new day, comes God's new grace, comes that joy, that hope for God's salvation. Um, and I think, yes, there is that expectation and um, this is so helpful to be able to speak to someone who's in that trouble. But I think also in the context of verses 4 to 5, you know, David is saying, praise God, praise God. And then he almost expects someone to say, oh, you know, but I can't. You know, I'm in trouble. You know, I, I can't do this right now. And then David is almost giving us the reason why we can praise God, not just when things go well, but precisely when we're in trouble, precisely when it, we don't feel like doing so. Because verse 5 tells us that maybe the trouble is also from God. Verse 5, his anger is for a moment and his favor 
is for a lifetime. Here's a perspective that says that both the trouble and both the the, tri- the tribulation, the trouble, but also the deliverance from that trouble, both come from God. And therefore, all the more, because you're experiencing this judgment, this wrath, this punishment, that therefore you should praise God in this so that he will deliver you into a position whereby you can praise him in his salvation. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Here's that expectation that God will save us, not just from a situation, you know, whatever you're going through, you know, God, take me out of this situation, take me out of this trouble, but that ultimately God is behind that trouble as well, such as God's sovereignty, such as God's control, that, you know, God put us there so that God can take us out of this and God could put us here in praise of him. And I think that's kind of like the context of David then telling his experiences so that we can connect with that and so that we can see that perspective of praising God in our days of trouble. Verse 6, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Now, what's this about? You know, he he's so confident in his prosperity. I shall never be moved. And, you know, that is, um, I don't know whether it's arrogance. Maybe, you know, he is the king. I mean, he is as rich as, it, as any person can ever be in his kingdom. He's the top guy in this mountain. And he says, it's by God's favor, he made this mountain strong. But then God his, his, hit his face, and then, and then David went, oh, you know, he was dismayed. And again, that perspective, uh, when things are good, when you are prospering, and God has put you on that mountain, that position, in that prosperity, that actually all it takes for is for God to turn his face away. And all of that just doesn't make sense. All of it loses its joy, its meaning, its fulfillment. And so David himself cries to God. This rich, prosperous, powerful person says, verse 8, To you I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord. Be my helper. And so, you know, David is not beyond calling out to God for help. You know, uh, and you think they might be obvious. You know, of course, you know, when you're in trouble, you call it to God. But, you know, think for it for a moment. Sometimes it doesn't occur to us, <laughs> especially if you've lived a life free of trouble, if you've lived a life whereby you're self-sufficient, it doesn't occur to you to ask for help when you are helpless. And in fact, you are almost trying to find ways that you can dig yourself out of this trouble. You're trying to find different ways to innovate yourselves out of this pit. But David is not beyond that. David knows immediately, instinctively, to call out to God. And um, I wonder if he's saying that to us now, before that trouble hits, and before we go into that tribulation, you know, have that perspective again, only God could have put you there, and therefore only God can take you out of that trouble. David knew that himself. And David is now say, saying that to us, well, in this context, in the dedication of the temple, completed, impressive, bringing your sacrifices before God, remember, he is the God who can save you out of death, out of trouble, out of tribulation. Praise him. Verse 11, you've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've transformed it. It's changed the situation from mourning, you know, sadness and sackcloth into dancing, 
into joyfulness. You've loosed my sackcloth. You've clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Psalm 30. I think that's enough. That's all. Yeah. Could say more, but let's move on to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. You know, this guy who gets all this power, this possession, this honor, rich guy, Bill Gates, you know. Actually, Bill Gates is kind of out of fashion. Who's the new top dog? Uh, the Tesla guy? What's his name? Um, Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Yeah, he's a cool, rich dude now. You know, Bill Gates, you know, no one, no, no one wants to be like, you know, you know, Microsoft. You know, that's not cool. But Tesla, you know, rocket ship, that's cool. Imagine you have all that, but then all the enjoyment goes to someone else. I think we can't even imagine that. And yet, and yet it does happen. <laughs> it, it, you know, a stranger enjoys all this, uh, all the benefits, all the... Imagine if the first person to reach Mars is not Elon Musk, it's the next generation. He's built all this foundation and he's, you know, built all the, you know, the technology, invested all his money into it. Someone else gets to ride on that rocket ship and go, whoa, so cool, you know, Martians. I don't know. <laughs> And he says, this is vanity. It's a grievous evil. And so it's not just it's life, you know, vanity, case of us, right, happens, but it's evil. This is wrong. It shouldn't be this way. The person who works hard, who is blessed, should enjoy that blessing. But actually, here it is. Here's that conundrum. You know, someone else gets that opportunity to, you know, to have that fun with it. Um, What else? Verse three, if a man fathers a hundred children, and lives many years, so that the years, days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. And that's not very politically correct. You know, some, a child that, you know, but, but compare it, you know, it's like two opposite extremes. Someone who has many children, and here's, a child who doesn't even get to live, you know, saying this is actually better than that. That's 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 twisted. Verse four, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. So my question going through my mind is why why is this comparison of this prosperity and this blessing, having lots of children, having lots of money, is not as good as this stranger? stillborn child you know what what you know how can you even say that this is better than that i think it's coming to the conclusion verse five moreover it has not seen the sun or known anything yet it finds rest rather than he so this situation finds rest even though he should live a thousand years twice over and yet enjoy no good do not all go to the one place and did you hear that enjoy no good. It's almost as if the lack of enjoyment, you know, it saps all the meaning in life. You know, no, no amount of prosperity, no amount of blessing will mean anything if you can't enjoy it. You know, it's like surrounded by food and not being able to, and not having taste buds. 
uh, or surrounded by children and yet being distant from them. You know, your all your f- relationships are fractured. He's and and in that sense, it's not saying that. Therefore, the person who has no life, who's seen only darkness, um, is better than that. By saying it's almost as if it's it's. How do you say? It's not to say that this guy, therefore, who doesn't have the riches, who is poor, who is again stillborn. I'm only using this because that's the verse. That's the word that the Bible uses. I don't. I don't think that it, it's it's a pleasant thing. But it's that kind of, kind of comparison that this is so empty. You know, as much as you aspire to this kind of wealth, and you know, it it's just empty if it does not have that joy of being able to enjoy it. And he says, you all go to the same place. In the end, all die. I think that's, that's the point. You know, in the end, in death, you go to that same point of having nothing, not being able to bring it with you. Mm, verse 7. Yeah, enjoyment. I mean, it's, it's almost like saying the point of life is enjoying life. And you can't enjoy it. No point living. Mm. Verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. What's that talking about? Um, better is having something that you have than to imagine something that you don't have. Is that what he's going on about? You know, verse 7, his appetite is not satisfied. You know, um, it's having an ambition that, that is greater than your ability, maybe. And um, maybe it, it, there's a connection with enjoyment. Again, it, it just makes you look down on the things that you have. You're not able to enjoy the things that are in your grasp. You're constantly thinking of more and more and more and more. And this is not good enough. Maybe. Maybe. Verse 8 compares the wise man and the fool. He says, what's the point of being wise compared to the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? I don't get that one. Verse 7. What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct? I, I, I don't know that. But it seems to me that um, it's talking again about not being able to enjoy the things that you have and almost having that ability to imagine something better, having that wisdom to know better, almost distracts you from the things that you do know now, the things that you have now, the things that you're able to enjoy now. It makes you long for things that you will never have. It's kind of depressing. And it's kind of shocking to read this in the Bible. The Bible is almost saying, you know, um, knowing better keeps you from knowing, enjoying the things that you have right now. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, there might be some truth in that. You know, if that's true, that the wiser person, the more richer person, the more accomplished person is unhappier, then there must be a lot of unhappy people here in Cambridge. Because we're going to find wiser, smarter, more accomplished people in, you know, here, you know, all, the, all these people. Or even students, you know, think, when I graduate, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And the Bible is almost saying that's keeping you from enjoying the now. 
uh, enjoy, from applying maybe even what you know now to your life, just just making something of your life now. You're constantly reaching and striving, and at the same time ignoring and dismissing the things that you have now. Maybe verse ten: Whatever has come to be has already been named. Been named. I mean, everything, whatever has to be, has already been named, and God names it, and so God has authority over it, and it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. So God is king. You know, He's named everything. He owns everything. You're just one of the things that has been named. Verse 11, the more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage of man? You know, no point arguing that with that situation. You know, all these words, it's all vanity. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? I have to read that again. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Is it saying that no one knows? Um, or is it saying that only God knows, but then he's not able to even tell man? It passes like a shadow. It's talking about that fleetingness of life. Um, and saying that, almost saying that, what's the point of it? What good is it for man to live these few days of these meaningless life? Oh, that's so depressing. No good of these days that are very, very few. And these few days are very, very meaningless. And it passes like a shadow is gone. <laughs> for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Uh, I thought he just pointed out that all go to the same place in verse 6, that all of them die, die and go to Sheol. But I guess there is that hiddenness. I think you don't know what's going to happen. And probably um, it's going to be frustrating, I guess, for you in this life. You know, you're unsure whether there is another life. And again, you know, to read this in the Bible is, you know, are, you know we're supposed to be Christians. We're, we're supposed, to be, supposed to be confident that there is going to be more in the next life. There's going to be heaven and there's going to be God. It's supposed to be better in every single way, especially in terms of, you know, everything, everything. You know, even talks about banquets, talks about food, talks about life that is full, talks about a relationship with God and with one another. No more sin, no more death, no more anything that contaminates with it. But here it's saying, you know, who knows? You know, who knows what's going to happen after that. Is he taunting, therefore, the person who says that there is nothing else after life? Maybe. Maybe, maybe that's that's the perspective. You know, um, so, okay, two possibilities. He's talking to the non-Christian and the Christian. So the non-Christian says, you know, no life after death. You know, just enjoy this life. And he's almost saying, I agree with you. Enjoy this life. Baha, can you enjoy this life? <laughs> can you actually do that? Because it's short, it's meaningless, it's fleeting, it has no meaning. You're constantly reaching for more. Even though you know that this is all there is, you're, you, you still want more. You want meaning in this life. And yet that keeps you from enjoying this life. Isn't that true? So non-Christian, challenging that notion that you can actually find that fullness, that meaningfulness in this meaningless life. So if that's true, that's what he's saying to the non-Christian, non-believing person in God, kind of like understanding in this life. But if he is talking to the Christian, I think, and I think it is, you know, it's all talking to someone who fears God and knows, knows there is God. You know, it's almost challenging us. 
you know, has, is that truly shaping your life now? How confident are you that there is a heaven? That, you know, you're not wasting your life now for that life to come. Um, yeah, it's almost bringing us to that edge of our lives, you know, that, that you know, all of us have a direction, you know, you, you want to work and you want to cry, climb up this ladder, ladder, you want to get to that point where you want to find that relationship, you want to get to that point, you have a family, you're happy, you have your kids and that kind of thing. So it's why if you draw the line all the way to its end, what happens after that? It says, you who believe in God, you who believe that God will restore all things, you who believe that God will compensate and wipe away every tear and he himself will be our reward. You know, is are you trying to make this life all that there is to be? And maybe it's speaking to those who actually have much in this life. You know, he mentions a lot of times, you know, the person who is wise, the person who is prosperous, who has lots of stuff, but then ends in a way that, you know, there is no burial. You know, someone else enjoys the accomplishments. Again, that, again, that Elon Musk character. So, so what if you get everything that you have in this life? If that's all that there is, this is not a life for you to enjoy either. You know, you who claim that there is a God, you who believe in the God who restores life in the life to come. You know, if that isn't true, then then there's no point in living this life, even claiming that God has blessed you with everything that you have in this life. Hmm. Uh, should should you know should 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 jump to. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11. I know I can only use this card once in Ecclesiastes because, you know, every time you're tempted to turn to, to this verse. But, you know, I'm going to use it now. I'm going to pull out the trump card now because knowing that I can't ever use this again. <coughs> 1 Corinthians, what am I looking for? 11, no, 15. Um, where, where, where are we? Um, verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, whereof all people most to be pitied. And Paul is saying here, you know, if you're living with Christ as your Lord, but to bless you only in this life. That means your hope in Christ is only for this life, that he says. Therefore, you are the most pitiable person of all of all people he then uses that word we you know if we think this way that the point of being a christian is so that we will be happy in this life he says pity us because i think you know he's saying you know you're not living your life to the full you're not eating you're not drinking you're not doing everything you can because there is a sense in which christians actually won't be that fully happy in this life you like you know, or if they do, you know, they will it will spoil their appetite for the life to come. They'll be shocked when Jesus does turn up. But either way, he says, you know, if only if that's the way you're living today, pity you, ho chum, yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, on that note, very depressing note. I'm going to end. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this perspective on life, on death, on the life to come. Help us, Lord, to have that right perspective. That this life, you know, is meaningless without joy, but also that that joy only comes through Christ. If only for this life we have this hope. We are to be the most pity for pitiful people of all. But if for the life to come, if Christ means we have life in the life to come, the age to come, we have forgiveness, we have eternal life, we have fellowship with you. 
then I guess we are the most joyful. We are the most privileged. We are the most blessed people of all. Uh, help us to treasure that. Help us to have that right perspective. On a Monday, uh, beginning of the week, as we go through this week, help us to look beyond this week to eternity. Help us to look to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And there you go. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and Psalm 30. Thank you for joining me. Take care and God bless. Bye.